Hello and welcome to Hard Tack, Episode 11, Battle of Okinawa, Part 1. I am your host, Spartan. For this episode, and for Episode 12, I'll be riding solo. This is the first part of a two-part series covering the 82-day Battle of Okinawa, 1945. Walla is taking these two episodes off to focus on university and other personal matters. However, she will return for episode 13, which is going to be a special episode, and the first of its kind, here on Hardtack. But that is all I will say about that for now. You'll just have to tune in on October 26th. Alright, let's get to it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. As a reminder to our listeners, if you would like to continue or add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, as well as the Hard Tack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. All can be found to our link tree listed in the episode description, or you can just search Hard Tack Pod, that's one word, on any of those platforms and you'll find us. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. For this episode, and for part two next week, the main sources I consulted were Dr. Thomas M. Huber's Okinawa, 1945, which is an exhaustive history of the 82-day battle that includes some really amazing combat photography, maps, and some diagrams. I found this book used on thrift books, and the seller that sent it was kind enough to include a photocopy of an old newspaper article, which was titled, Lee Man Recalls War's Bloody Final Clash, written by Kevin Lawler. The article contains an oral interview with retired Marine Paul Eisen, who landed on Okinawa in 1945 and fought against the Imperial Japanese Army for the duration of the battle. He was also in the final battle, and I will share his words and some of the contents of the article when we get there in part two. The second source I'll be referring to regularly is a favorite of mine, and it is titled The Battle for Okinawa. It was written by Colonel Hiromichi Yahara, who we will learn more about in just a little bit. Operation Iceberg, the American invasion of the Japanese island of Okinawa, was the largest amphibious landing in the Pacific, and, unbeknownst to either belligerent at the time of conception and execution, the final battle of World War II. Naval bombardment from American battleships had fired countless volleys at the beachheads since the 24th of March to soften enemy defenses and mitigate assumed casualty rates for what was predicted to be a highly contested amphibious landing. When the American 10th Army poured out of their landing craft onto the Hagushi beaches at 0830 hours on L-Day, 
which was Easter morning, April 1st of 1945. The expected assault of machine gun and artillery fire and the infamous bonsai charges of Japanese infantry never arrived. The landing was met with silence. Unbeknownst to American forces at the time, the Japanese leadership of 32nd Army had watched and allowed the landing from the safety of Mount Shuri. For American military command, victory in Operation Iceberg would allow for the proposed subsequent invasion of the Japanese home islands, a two-part operation known as Operation Downfall. Possession of the island would aid American war efforts by severing lines of Japanese air-armed communication, crippling naval communications, and would further provide a line of advance to Manchuria and Japan's mainland industrial centers, with a strategic objective of impairing Japan's ability to wage war. Japanese goals stood in stark contrast. Japan's strategic objective in the Battle of Okinawa was delay of the American invasion of mainland Japan through a battle of attrition, the consequence of which was the suspension of Operation Downfall and the American deployment of atomic bombs that resulted in the unconditional surrender Japanese high command so hoped to avoid. So let's talk a little bit about Okinawa's geography. Okinawa, 60 miles in length from north to south and 2 to 8 miles wide, is the largest of the Ryukyu Islands and is situated 400 miles southwest of the Japanese mainland. Island terrain varies between the north and the south. The north composed primarily of hills and mountainous formations, and the south flat and consequently populated with the bulk of the island's residents. Terrain features dictated that potential points for an amphibious landing were limited. Defensive measures implemented by Japanese leadership were therefore influenced by the predictable courses of action, analogous with these operation-limiting factors. However, differences of opinion on the execution of battle plagued the highest levels of Japanese leadership before the battle even began. Japanese leadership was primarily composed of three main players. The first was Lieutenant General Mitsuru Ushijima, commander of the 32nd Army, Imperial Japanese Army, Okinawa. Ushijima was a graduate of the Japanese Military Academy, JMA, in 1908. Ushijima had served with distinction in Burma and was previously the vice minister in the Ministry of the Army before he was assigned command of the 32nd in Okinawa on 8 August 1944. Lieutenant General Ushijima, respected for his adherence to traditional Japanese military conduct, was not a direct personality of conflict due to his habitual practice of allowing subordinate commanders autonomy in operational decision-making. His leadership style allowed room for more robust, subordinate personalities. Speaking of robust personalities, this takes us to Lieutenant General Isamu Cho, Chief of Staff, 32nd Army, IJA, Okinawa. Lieutenant General Isamu Cho served as the 32nd Army's Chief of Staff, and whereas Mitsuru Ushijima was a composed man, Cho was more akin to General MacArthur in public displays of flamboyance. Previously a right-wing extremist of the Cherry Society, Cho took part in multiple military coups during the 1930s, regularly drank to inebriation, and bristled with an enthusiasm that gave the man an outward character described by his direct subordinate, previously mentioned, Colonel Hiromichi Yahara, as a fine-spirited fellow. So how did Lieutenant General Cho get along with his direct subordinate? Colonel Hiromichi Yahara was the Senior Operations Officer of the 32nd Army, IJA, on Okinawa. His position was most equivalent to a U.S. Army G3 Chief of Operations. Colonel Yahara was Cho's opposite, quiet, reserved, and an analytical man, free from the bonds of Japanese traditional views on military conduct. Colonel Yahara held the reputation of an aloof but talented operations officer. As the situation deteriorated for 32nd Army during the Battle of Okinawa, overall tactical decision-making would fall to Colonel Yahara by order of Lieutenant General Ushijima. Before overall tactical decision-making was handed over 
to Colonel Yahada, preemptive decisions of the 32nd Army were purely defensive and based upon a principle of non-engagement with the invading enemy force. The defensive conduct of battle was in response to strategic decisions made by Imperial headquarters. As 32nd Army and Okinawan's force sent a labor, expanded underground cave systems, constructed pillboxes and trenches, and dug reverse slope defenses in the months and weeks leading to invasion, 14th Area Army was heavily engaged in defense of the Philippines against General Douglas MacArthur's forces. Imperial headquarters, in response to Allied success, pulled the 9th Division, totaling 25,000 men, from Okinawa for rapid deployment to the Philippines. Such a loss forced Japanese leadership to acquiesce to the circumstances that enabled an uncontested American landing and dictated the defensive conduct of operations demonstrated by 32nd Army. Further, the strategic objective changed because of the loss of manpower. Rather than a battle to prevent American invasion of mainland Japan, the battle was to be one of attrition. The Japanese command of the 32nd Army on Okinawa predicted that the American amphibious assault would be preceded by naval and aerial bombardment of the southern portion of the island on its western side near Kadena, the present location of today's Kadena Air Base, American-held, which could be rendered ineffective through sheltering its forces in a system of underground tunnels. The assumption was that once the invaders were satisfied, the island defenses had been thoroughly softened. Assault forces would storm the beach at a single location, and this had been tried and true throughout other locations prior to the Battle of Okinawa throughout the Pacific War. The predictions, of course, proved to be accurate. As American forces shelled the beachheads and assumed supply and command positions, the defenders remained sheltered, unable to spare the critical manpower that would be needed in the weeks to follow. 32nd's opening moves were defensive in nature and demanded patience, while 10th Army landed, established beachheads, and began moving inland toward the outnumbered defenders where the real battle would take place. Let's take a look at American leadership. Admiral Raymond Ames Spruance was the commander of the 5th Fleet U.S. Navy. A graduate of the United States Naval Academy in 1906, Spruance rose through the ranks meritoriously and participated in various operations in the Pacific during World War II. Instrumental in American victory at the Battle of Midway, Spruance was named Nimitz's Chief of Staff. His leadership was vital in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, Iwo Jima, and the subsequent bombardment and amphibious assault at the Battle of Okinawa. Next up is Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner, Jr., Commander, 10th Army, United States Army. 10th Army Commander Lieutenant General Buckner was a unique personality among American leadership. He was tasked with organizing the 10th Army in 1944 and the amphibious landing on Okinawa in 1945. Buckner would meet his fate on Okinawa. It was his decision to execute a head-on attack of the substantial Japanese defenses on the southern end of the island that, though achieving desired results, cost so many American and Japanese lives. We know what the Japanese planned, a battle of attrition and a defensive approach. But what about American operations? American war planners, and more significantly their men, had learned difficult lessons in amphibious assaults throughout the Pacific Islands against Japanese defenders in the operations that preceded Operation Iceberg. The loss of life at Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and similar locations in the island hopping campaign had taught them the importance of naval and aerial bombardment. American approach began with execution of these two tactics, an initial aerial bombardment on the 23rd of March and a week's worth of naval bombardment between 24 March and 1 April that saw the expenditure of 5,162 tons of ammunition on assumed positions of enemy defenses. Broken into three phases, Operation Iceberg relied on cooperation between American Armed Services, the greatest strength and tactical advantage during the battle. The cooperation of the Joint Service Operation was reflected in three phases, the first of which was American capture of southern Okinawa, to include the Kurama Island Group, from which headquarters and operations bases were to be developed. Phase two of the operational plan was the capture of northern Okinawa. 
and phase three, the seizure of further surrounding islands to be utilized in the future invasion of mainland Japan. Like the Japanese High Command's belief in air power, American naval leaders, namely Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, held to the truth that air superiority was necessary for the success of naval and ground operations. Where Japan's military failed in this aspect during the Battle of Okinawa, American cooperation displayed through naval bombardment and close air support, or CAS, of ground troops proved to be combat determinants for victory. Further emphasis was placed on Okinawa's isolation, both in maritime and air approach. American submarine forces and aviation groups were to prevent resupply of troops and supply from reaching the island in support of prolonging the inevitable defeat of General Ushijima's 32nd Army. As the sky brightened in the land of the rising sun on Easter morning, April 1st, 1945, the combined arms operation known as Iceberg was set in motion by American forces, and an amphibious assault that began the largest and bloodiest battle of the Pacific War commenced. The lack of Japanese forces due to the reassignment of over 25,000 troops has already been discussed. So what was their composition and what resources did they have available? In every aspect of battle strength, Japan fell short of the invading American forces. 32nd Army was composed of three infantry divisions, five mixed brigades, and one tank regiment. Total calculated strength of Japanese forces was 77,199, 38,310 of which were infantry. The remaining 39,069 military personnel were composed of armored troops, artillery, and automatics weapons troops, Air Force ground assets, logistical and engineering personnel, and Air Force and Navy ground troops, routed out with communications and miscellaneous uniform personnel. An additional 23,350 personnel were gleaned from the Okinawan population, perhaps the most controversial of which were the Blood and Iron Imperial Corps, the Taketsu Kinotai. The Taketsu Kinotai was a paramilitary unit composed of school-aged males mobilized for service by the Japanese Imperial Army during the Battle of Okinawa. Forced into combat and given scant training, casualty rates for the estimated 1,400 young men reached over 800 after the 82 days of battle. Although 32nd Army suffered from low numbers in manpower, and while not sufficient to deliver a winning edge, Japan's artillery guns were substantial in number, with 400 being of 75 centimeter bore, 120 of which were 15 centimeter bore and above. Japanese used these guns to great effect, as noted by American forces. Quote, never had Pacific veterans seen Japanese artillery in any such quantity or encountered such effective use of it, especially in coordination with infantry attacks. End quote. Japanese artillery proved effective during the 82-day battle and became a primary target of cast strikes. Coupled with artillery strikes was the 27th Tank Regiment, though sorely lacking with only 17 medium tanks and 13 light tanks. Anti-tank guns were the greatest strength in the Tank Regiment, at about 100 estimated guns and total American armored losses reflected as such. Japanese air power was limited to sorties flown from bases in Kyushu and Taiwan, and arrived at the end of the first week of the battle, and a two-pronged attack that included the Japanese combined fleet's failed execution of Operation Tengol. Approximately 700 Japanese aircraft launched an attack on the U.S. 5th Fleet, but almost the entire force was shot down or died in kamikaze attacks. In contrast, American force composition and resources were quite robust. American leadership was amply prepared for Operation Iceberg, and approached the Ryukyu Islands prepared to exert military dominance through a massive combined arms amphibious assault. Manpower numbers fluctuated during the battle due to casualties as well as reinforcements. Initial assault strength for the morning of April 1st, or L-Day, was 183,000, 154,000 of which were dispersed among seven combat divisions. Veterans made up the bulk of the ground forces and had fought in various operations in the Pacific to include Leyte, Guam, 
Guadalcanal, and Peleliu, among others. The battle-hardened troops were all too aware of what they would be facing during Operation Iceberg. Each division received support from tank, motorized vehicle, signal, and service battalions. American ground power was significantly greater than troop strength in the 32nd Army. However, this was to be expected given the need for superior strength and an invading force for any hope of success. Artillery supply for the invasion force, both in naval power and field pieces, was exceptional. The total number of rounds expended between April 1st and June 30th by the 10th Army Field Artillery alone was 1,766,352, over 1.1 million of which fired from guns of 105mm bore size. The remainder fired from 75 and 155mm howitzers, 155mm guns, and 8-inch howitzers. American armor numbers dwarfed that of their adversary. Though 221 American tanks, which was over 50% of the total on island, would be destroyed or become inoperable during the operation, 10th Army's advance was largely enabled by armored support. Naval ammunition expenditure was approximately 30% of 10th Army Field Artillery's expenditure. Over 85,000 of the rounds fired between March 26 and April 1st in the softening phase of the operation. CAS was provided by 5th Fleet's air assets and proved instrumental in the destruction of enemy defense positions during the operation. The existence of airstrips on Okinawa enabled greater use of CAS as the airstrips fell into American possession. Though Japanese artillery during the battle was considered remarkable by American forces, compared to American naval, air, and ground firepower, it was little more than a whimper. All right, this brings us to L-Day, April 1st, 1945. 10th Army sloshed through the water atop the coral shelves that surround Okinawa, 8th Marine Division on the assaulting force's left flank, just below Camp Zanpa. 1st Marine Division and 7th Infantry Division filling out the middle of the landing, and 98th Infantry Division on the right flank near Kadena. The landing was uncontested. For the veterans of the Pacific, this was anything but expected. A week of naval bombardment aimed at softening the landing had been wasted on the defending force who had taken refuge and their defensive fortifications. However, according to Colonel Yahara, the confusion that must have been felt by the American landing force was similarly shared by the 32nd Army. Imperial Command in Tokyo had assured 32nd Army that the American landing would not be contested by ground and artillery forces, but by Japanese air forces that were to strike landing craft before troops could dismount. This did not occur. The failed cooperation between the IJA's ground and air forces was to be the first of many disappointments for Colonel Yohara and 32nd's High Command. Once the invasion force had gained the beachheads, advance into the interior of the island began, while more troops and supplies for the battle to come established bases on the shore. The bulk of the 32nd Army remained hidden in their defensive network to the south, and American troops did not make contact until night on L-Day, around the Yontan and Kadena airfields, which were occupied by the IJA 1st Specially Established Regiment. The regiment was soundly defeated, and experienced high casualties before retreating northward to be absorbed under the Kunigami Detachment. Both of these airfields would remain in American possession thereafter until the end of the battle. The 10th Army and its leadership continued to experience confusion. The ease with which the airfields were captured and 32nd Army's uncharacteristic lack of resistance allowed the 10th Army the time and space to firmly establish logistical lines and supply dumps, as well as develop its air forces on the captured airfields. The invasion force also began pushing north as planned against the Kunigami Detachment which was meant to delay the American advance and by critical time for southern defenses to further prepare for the Battle of Attrition. Kunigami failed to achieve this objective so much so that the southern forward Gaia detachment, whose goal was to keep pressure off of the Japanese mainlines to the south, was also pushed back. Japanese resistance had ranged from non-existent to dismissible since the invasion began. 
the seemingly lackadaisical character of Japanese forces changed on April 6th, as the resistance force expected on Day finally arrived in the form of a kamikaze attack. The attack force, which lost approximately 300 planes, largely targeted patrol and picket ships of Task Force 58, and succeeded in sinking two destroyers, a minesweeper, and two ammunition ships, along with an LST, or landing ship tank. Given the strength of the attack, damage to American naval power was minimal at best. Japanese war planners would have likely had greater success in achieving operational objectives had the attack been coordinated as a combined arms effort with the scheduled naval attack by the Japanese combined fleet on the night of April 6th. In what had already been a pattern of misfortune for the Japanese high command, the advancing combined fleet was identified by an American submarine, which alerted Task Force 58 of the fleet's movement. Among the combined fleet was the battleship Yamato. The American fleet first engaged the enemy with attacks from aircraft as its surface assets moved in. The engagement was an overwhelming victory for Task Force 58, which secured the waters around Okinawa and sank the Yamato, Yahagi, and four destroyers at the cost of only 10 planes. This is a great place to stop for this week's episode. Next week in episode 12, I will again be writing solo for Battle of Okinawa Part 2. We will pick up with some Japanese offensive action and the continued American advance, as well as explore the action along the Shuri Line. We're going to break down the immensely violent and bloody battle of Sugarloaf Hill, and we'll conclude with the breaking of the Shuri Line and the 30 seconds eventual defeat. Tune in. Also, don't forget if you would like to be featured in an episode to send us in your hardtack crunch. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.